I watched a football game this weekend. A rare feat for me. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I mean, this are, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work at all. They're just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's sports podcast. I'm Chadwick Matlin, an editor at 538. With me in the studio, it's a slightly hoarse, slightly under-the-weather Neil Statman Payne. Hey, you know, uh, just like Jordan in the flu game. So we're, so we're going to expect you to just play out of your mind oh, yeah. today? Oh, you're yeah. going to podcast out of your and mind? And you're going to carry me out of the studio, Kate. you just be leaning on me, <laughs> sipping on some Gatorade as right. we uh, walk out of here? And it, and it may have been a secret hangover from the night before. You were gambling? <laughs> it's going to create a conspiracy theory, I'm sure. Has that been... Has that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Chad, we should do a yeah. show just on NBA conspiracies because there is yeah. so much out there. That so Jordan much. was hungover. Wow. That changes everything. Yep. Do you know about the secret suspension? The bent down, this is the ga- yes, uh, uh, or the bent down lottery card uh, for the Knicks yeah. and Patrick. I know Ewing. about the lottery card the suspension, and I know the, about the baseball thing. Jordan was actually suspended. Yeah. So you're not so that you're naive. Like, I know that's why I'm surprised <laughs> that I didn't know about the flu. The flu hangover. Uh, also with us in the studio, it's hot takedown general practitioner Kate Fagan, also an ESPNW columnist. Hello, Kate. Hi, Chad. Kate, you just got your doctorate. How's that feel? Is it honorary or can I go practice? I mean, uh, I'm a general practitioner. You can practice within the studio. Okay. So not a ton you, of patients you, you to be to seen. My point is Neil's sick. You know? <laughs> All right. Patient uh, zero right here. <laughs> on today's show, we're going to talk about last weekend's football action and get ready for this upcoming championship weekend, conference championship weekend, that is. Then we will talk about soccer. Just over half of the English Premier League season is complete our friend mike goodman from espn insider welcome on the show to talk about the state of the table and then finally neil statman Payne, despite the illness despite the obstacles that his that life and his body have thrown at him has been hard at work to find carmelo anthony a new home that's Carmelo, as we'll discuss in the in the piece, is very special to us here at five thirty eight for a variety of reasons. So, if the Knicks don't want Carmelo, we'll take Neil him. wants. Yes, we'll take him. Think. Exactly. All right, let's uh, let's get right to it. Let's get to football. Football. Gosh, that was a fun football game. That Packers Cowboys game. That was. Thankfully, there was finally a good game. There really finally. weren't yeah. good games leading. Oh up yeah, to it. and I you mean, could argue that Steelers Chiefs oh, game yeah. was. Even that game was yeah. just. And uh, the wild card weekend wasn't good either. Uh, terrible. So. Right. So what I, did I say it was Chad the uh, fourth worst wild card weekend ever? And then we also had a terrible <laughs> Saturday, and the nightcap on Sunday was was boring. Which means next weekend is going to be actually pretty good, I think. But we'll, we'll get there. We'll see. Uh, so let's talk about this Packers Cowboys game. Um, the Packers won thirty four to thirty one in a final second kick by Mason Crosby. See you, alum. Ooh. How many? How many? Do you think you know all the CU alums in very, you know, in, in the major sports? Do you just have that radar? Yes. Kate? Yes. Well, especially in basketball because there's like one. <laughs> well, yeah, Chauncey Billups <laughs> is retired. Right. And Andre Robeson, who, who's uh-huh. with the Oklahoma State 
Thunder. Oklahoma City, City Thunder. Thunder, excuse me. Oklahoma State Thunder. I don't know. I'm in Big 12 <laughs> mode now. Yes, I can. And Mason Crosby, I will, of course, always know because he was phenomenal and he was at CU when I was at CU. And I used to work out next to him. So I'm making this about me right now. This is about the Buffaloes. What, what's a kicker's workout? The same as the rest of the football team. Just perhaps a little less weight at various <laughs> activities okay. and but, lifts. But, Kate, how many free throws in a row could he hit? Less, fewer than 100, <laughs> mind you. But anyway, Mason Crosby was – I mean, I know, that, I know that probably people have a different name that's top of mind when they think about the Packers-Cowboys game. But I personally remember Mason the Crosby. MVP for you. <laughs> yes. I mean, that was pretty historic, too, the, the field goals that he hit in the two last – Two 50-yarders, right? Yeah, two 50-yarders yeah. in the last minute. And he, hit, he really hit three. Or a minute and a half, Because they called that timeout, but he right? drilled that one. He got iced. I mean, come on, kick, Mason Crosby. Made it again. So we should and know, other things happened. We should know that from an analytics perspective – so let's get into the game. From an analytics <laughs> perspective, icing the kicker – for some reason, we're going to start at the end of the game here. Icing the kicker does not work, right? Bill Barnwell has wrote about this. At Grantland, Neal, there is no reason for coaches to continue calling timeouts. True or false? Yeah. That is correct, according to uh, the research. Okay. And I'm sure it's uh, because, it. first of all, why would we think that uh, a highly trained you know, professional in this situation would kind of get rattled? If anything, getting a kind of mulligan, how could that hurt? How could it hurt to have a practice kick? I would, I'm sure the data has been examined. How often have coaches called a timeout and then the kicker actually missed it? So do you know? I mean, Neil, do you know this statistic off the top of your head? I do not know off the top of my head. <laughs> Barnwell <laughs> may go into this in his Grantland piece, and, and, and we'll put that up on our, uh, right, on our, on our show page. I, I do want wonder, though, would you guys still call, call the timeout? Despite the research, right? It shows that there's a null effect. What, not that it encourages is, someone to What is the, like the, the, the human element at play there? Because it is a form of, as we talk about all the time, like extending life, right? Like why people won't make dicey calls because they'd rather just keep the game going. This feels to me like it, like an extent of that or an extension of that. Like keep it going. And it's a little bit like uh, we talk in baseball about managers, you know, stealing and bunting uh, when they probably shouldn't. But it's a form of control. It's like one of the few right. things that you can do that you have at your disposal. And in this case, the timeout. last resort, yeah, is calling w- the timeout. I wonder if it would be different if kickers missed more field goals. The trick is that a kicker is likely to make a field goal. If anyway. You, anyway, yeah. And so to call the timeout, you're probably going to be insured against calling a timeout on a missed kick. Obviously, it happens sometimes, as you point out. Right. And so at the worst, it's neutral, yeah. right, as far as appearances go. You did everything you could. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right, so so the kick was 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 good, and, and, and the – Packers won the game. It was a topsy-turvy last five minutes of the game as far as win probability goes. At some point, um, the Cowboys were were down. So when Crosby kicks his first kick, a 56-yarder, the Cowboys were down uh, to an 18% win probability. Was that their lowest of the game? No. They were down no, no. 21, right? Or 21 to Right. 30. At that point, it was uh, it, it was in the high 90s. And then uh, when they went into the fourth quarter, it was still 93% for Green Bay wow. to win. Right. And so... But then the Cowboys come back, and at first it's 48%. And then when Rodgers takes a sack in the fourth quarter on one of those final drives, uh, the Cowboys were up to, I think, 50 Yeah, it was a 10-yard loss, which yeah. kind of uh, significantly decreased their odds of kicking the game-winning field goal. And then he makes uh, that 36-yarder to Jared right. Cook anyway. So that's what's fun about this game, I think, is that the stats tell us something, but also watching it tells something the stats definitely don't, which is like that 36-yard pass was so outrageously fun 
to watch live, and it's something that it's just not going to register within within the stat sheet in the same way, you know, with with, with the pressure and and the wind probably swing on the line. Yeah, and also I don't know that it's baked into maybe it is the quarterback at play in those wind probability because it felt like having the Aaron teams Rogers, are baked in, but not the quarterback right, himself. like yeah. that 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 throw that Aaron Rodgers makes because Aaron Rodgers was the one who had that play the probability felt somewhat more likely right. to me to, to make a big completion to get into field goal range than if it had been any other quarterback. And we should say, too, that based on Neil's research, it wasn't just Rodgers who was so great in this game. It was also Dak Prescott. Uh, Prescott actually had a better quarterback rating right. than Rodgers did. And after having a sort of quiet first quarter, I would say, uh, is the best way to put it. And, you know, Neil, there seemed to be some cries from the commentariat that Ezekiel Elliott didn't get enough touches in this game. Does that bear out when you actually look at the numbers? I don't really think so because he carried the ball 22 times in the game, and that was one of the higher numbers actually by a running back in a game in which they averaged you know five yards per carry and lost. Typically, teams that lose playoff games uh, tend to not run the ball just as a, as a general rule. And you know, it's a, as much talk as always gets bandied about about like establishing the run. Really, these games, they're a, a, a long-time argument made by Aaron Schatz of uh, Football Outsiders and others has been that teams really win and lose on the basis of how well they pass at the beginning of the game and then how well they use the running game to kind of lock it up and take time off the clock at the end of the game. So if you kind of view it through that perspective, it was a little bit uh, surprising in some ways that he got as many carries as he did because, again, te- it, you know, running backs on teams that, that lose playoff games don't don't tend to have a lot of carries just in general. Going into the game, I I thought the Cowboys would win simply because it seemed as if the Cowboys had to just keep doing what they'd done all season, whereas the Packers, you know, without Jordy Nelson and with a much weaker defense than, you know, than other like Super Bowl contenders. I'm like, all right, you got to have Aaron Rodgers like establish, you know, a tight end over the middle, you, like all these different things that I felt in some way the Packers had to stretch, whereas the Cowboys, I'm like, they just got to be the Cowboys, what we've seen all season. When you look at the numbers, and like you just mentioned, like 22 rushes, in watching it, it looked like the Cowboys did play like the Cowboys. Did they do anything slightly different, maybe a little bit outside of their regular season identity? Well, yeah, they probably threw the ball more than their overall average just because of the circumstances of that game. There's been research by Chase Stewart, who has contributed to us in the past, just about how much of a difference the score at any given moment makes on your inclination to run between, you know, if you have the lead early in a game, you're going to be much more likely to run the ball uh, subsequently than, than if you're behind. So in that sense, yeah, it was kind of an un-Cowboys-like game just because they haven't really trailed that much right. and, and found themselves in kind of that kind of hole uh, relative to the season. But, you know, it's not like you could say, oh, Dak Prescott looked like when he was actually forced to sort of mount a comeback that he wasn't up to it. it, it like you said, Chad, he had the higher passer rating in the game. He, he played great, especially at the end of the game, and looked like he was kind of position to shred that uh, Packers defense. Now, one thing going back to what you said, Kate, about like the Cowboys seeming like uh, you know all they had to do is do what they've done, and what they've done has been this balanced team. I do wonder if this uh, idea and also the the um, the Chiefs losing uh, kind of add up to a trend toward 
the death of this idea that, oh, the balanced team is the team that is sort of better, all else being equal, and that you should strive for this balanced team when we have teams that are really kind of quarterback heavy and don't necessarily have the most efficient running games, actually being the teams that, that win, uh, not just the the um, not just the Packers, but also the Steelers, the Patriots are a team that were not very efficient running the ball this year compared to their passing games. So I do wonder if this is just one of those years that we can kind of put to rest the idea of balance is what you should strive yeah. for as a team. Passing gonna, is really what you should strive for. Pass well, stop the pass. Or just have something be exceptional. And I realize that, I mean, college game is different. So we're coming off a college title game where we had a balanced Clemson team and an exceptional Alabama defense. But in the NFL, I mean, if you go back through the last however many Super Bowl champions, like everyone was exceptional at something. Like the Seattle defense was exceptional. Uh, When was the last, like, quote-unquote, really balanced Super Bowl champion? Maybe that Seattle team was balanced because Russell Wilson, but it really was an exceptional defense. You'd probably say the Patriots teams have been balanced. I mean, Brady's obviously exceptional, but... Outside of yeah, that, maybe like it's so those, like Denver last do. year is an exceptional defense. Right. right, maybe those early 2000s Patriots teams were kind of the closest that you could get because Brady had not become this sort of efficiency monster that he would become late in his career. And they're also really good at running, had one of the best defenses. Those are some of the most complete teams. But really, yeah, in the last 10 you know years or so, you haven't seen as many of those. And Bill Barnwell wrote a great column about how now at this stage of the playoffs, in some ways the exception exceptionality of the teams uh, that that remain is so wrapped up in their quarterbacks. We haven't even mentioned the Falcons and Matt Ryan, who yeah. are kind of the biggest example of this, where the, the passing game made up such a, a part of their performance this year. Now, in a weird way, those advantages are kind of nullified because all four teams have outstanding quarterbacks and sort of holes elsewhere. And so he wrote about how it's really going to come down to everything outside of the quarterbacks because it really is a stalemate between the, mm. the four quarterbacks remaining. So let's talk about those those games. Uh, it seems like the AFC game is, is maybe certainly less sexy than the NFC game. Is that is that fair to say? Because the Patriots just seem like they're better than the Steelers. Is, is that I just guess me? It, That's... NFC seems sexier because it seems like a shootout. Like... Ryan Whereas... versus Rodgers, yeah. We should, yeah. We, should, we should say that the 538 uh, prediction model – has the New England game at 70% for the Patriots, 30% for the Steelers, uh, 61% for the Falcons, and 39% for the Packers. Now, ELO doesn't take into account necessarily how good something actually looked on on the field. They're just they don't take account. into account the gaze. They don't take into account the gaze. <laughs> We really got to find a new way to pronounce that. I but I will say it does take into account sort of the hotness of a team, right? right. So the Packers, and that they beat the Cowboys, right? So the Packers, you know, if you looked at something like their season-long, you know, regular season averages, they probably would look like pretty heavy underdogs uh, against the Falcons on the road. But the fact that the Packers have kind of pulled off uh, these wins, and especially um, the, the win at Dallas, does contribute to sort of th- they look like one of the hottest teams. Teams, uh, and that makes them more likely. But then, you know, uh, on the other side, like you said, the the Patriots at home against the Steelers seems somewhat lopsided by conference championship standards. Uh, so, you know, uh, I should also note that the Steelers haven't beaten the Patriots in the playoffs since 1997. So they've met up in the conference they've championships only met three or four times. Right, right that exactly. Like a but amount, that's a decent amount. Um, so uh, I'd be interested to see if I the Steelers can. You snap know, that. my non-history bias that I just generally. Think that sports it is trivia. It's tr- it's trivia. It doesn't tell as much. Chad. But like, you know, I think those so. are I'm very with different you, teams. Chad, though, like, 
when when people are it was like Seattle's going to win because they've got they've got history like they they've been there before. Well, I'm like it, what the one thing history has taught us is that like it, it will then change who eventually yeah like it changes b- because right now I want to say Atlanta's not going to win because they're Atlanta right. Well then, once they start winning, I'm going to be like, "Well, Atlanta, you know, Atlanta's really." <laughs> they knocked on that strong. door so many times; they yeah. just had to bust through I mean, one of just, these days. It, yeah. It's a it's a foundational piece that really you can move to be anywhere you want it to be. Right. So, real quick on whether the Steelers uh, can actually challenge the Patriots, it seems to me like the the conditions of that Steelers Chiefs game, which are cold and wet, along with a Chiefs defense that was very good, maybe obscuring how good the Steelers offense is, and I and I do think there's sort of. Um, there's a temptation to be like, well, they, they couldn't even score a touchdown. And so they're not going to be able to do anything in, against Patriots. But the, the Texans gave the Patriots a ride for a little bit in that game. And, and so for some reason, that one feels like the 70-30 isn't quite right. That's, that's what my gut's telling me. Yeah, and then there, when I was in Bristol last week, a lot of the, the early reaction to this game, there's a lot of analysts picking Pittsburgh. I'm not saying – that's just a – a, a telephone version of hot take, right? Like there were hot takes <laughs> given that I am passing along to you that they were given that Pittsburgh, that they were picking Pittsburgh. And I, I'm thinking it was a lot based on the run game and what a big believer a lot of those like, you know, old school analyst coaches are in like establishing the run game and, and also balance and the balance, They're the more balanced balance. And, and also that there, there is a, I don't know if it's a formula, but Getting pressure on Tom Brady in certain ways has historically, historically seemed like a formula in the playoffs to throw him off balance. Like we have seen that before. Right. Yeah, I've I've heard that uh, kind of storyline also be brought up about uh, just the pressure factor with Brady. The one thing there, though, is that the Steelers were not an especially great uh, pass rushing team during the year. If you look at Football Outsiders' adjusted sack rate, they only ranked 19th out of the NFL's 32 teams. So just something else to keep in mind because you'll definitely hear that um, going into the games. Uh, and and you know we've seen that with superior defensive lines and and uh, front sevens but the Steelers might not be as good up front as they used to be uh, in or are in our minds the Steelers were always amazing at defense in my mind right Histor- yeah historically historically yeah. all right let's leave it there and move on to soccer all right on to soccer where just a little over half of the English Premier League season has passed and there are so many storylines when I look at the top of that table and the middle of that table and the bottom and the bottom just of that table <laughs> We do not talk about tables without bringing in Mike Goodman, Hot Takedown's table correspondent and soccer correspondent. Mike, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, guys. So, Mike, when we look at the table, uh, Chelsea at the top, Leicester's in the middle, or towards the bottom, actually, and it seems to me like, let, let's, start, let's start with Chelsea, and then and we'll get to, to Leicester. Is Chelsea really as good as they look, and how did they get so much better compared to last year? Yeah, all right. So Chelsea are very, very good. Um, they're, I mean, to date, they've been both obviously by points, but also by performance, probably the best team in the Premier League. Um, they've got like a seven-point lead now, which is a lot, 21 games in. Um, but a lot of it has to do with specifically um, how Antonio Conte has been playing. Um, about two months into the season, he sort of changed their tactics a little bit. They went to a, a unique uh, system with three center backs and two wing backs, uh, and it's worked really well. They're, they're a defensive juggernaut. 
And, you know, you mentioned Lester off the top. Part of that has to do with um, bringing in N'Golo Kante from Lester, and he's just like a, a midfield force defensively in front of that back three. And it's just really, really hard to break them down. And then they've com- combined that with um, they've been running really hot on the attacking side of the ball. And that, that's, that's a really difficult combination for anybody to combat. And yeah, it's interesting you said their, their defense is super stout. They've allowed only 15 goals against. Their goal differential is, is plus 30. The only team that comes close to that are Kate Fagan's Tottenham Hotspur. I, I, do you say it all together like that? What do you mean? Because I said are Tottenham Hotspur? What am I allowed to say when I'm rooting for them? Like, Do you I say the Spurs you... or Tottenham, but I can't say it together? Uh, right, Mike? You can say Tottenham Hotspur or Spurs. Don't say the Spurs. Oh, got it. Okay, so football. Let's get to the good team. Tottenham Hotspurs. Is that right? Am I good there? Tottenham Hotspur. I got to learn all these rules. I'm embarrassing myself. Um, I know they had the the 2-0 win over Chelsea. What did you see in watching that match that this is a leading question that leads you to believe that Tottenham really are title contenders or was that an aberration to you, their performance at White Hart Lane? No, I think they're, they're very, very good. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily call them title contenders if only because Chelsea have been so strong, but if you're looking at sort of the champions league spots, then, you know, second, third and fourth right behind they're they're absolutely uh, in the thick of that race. Defensively, they're different than Chelsea, but they're, also excellent. You know, Spurs are much more um, proactive defensively. You know, th- their defensive strategy is predicated on not letting teams really control the ball, complete passes, get in, even get into positions to take shots. While Chelsea is a little more uh, concerned with sort of positional soundness, and th- they're happy to let other teams have the ball as long as they don't have it in dangerous areas. Spurs are one of the best in the league at, at going and taking the ball back. Um, Early in the season, they struggled a little bit, but it was mostly, you know, health-related. Harry Kane missed a stretch. Toby Alderweireld, their center, their, their center back, missed a stretch. And now um, it looks like Jan Vertonghen, their other center back, is going to be out for a while, six weeks, two months, something like that. So things haven't gone perfectly for them this year, which is why it's kind of encouraging that they're in second place anyway. Like, they've had a much bumpier ride uh, this season, and they've sort of come through it pretty strong. Um, there are other teams and ideas to get to, but can I just get a quick lowdown on why the rules for what I can say and what I can call Tottenham are so strict? Like, can you try and explain it to me? Because otherwise, I'm not going to be able to remember it. Why can't I say the Spurs? Oh, is there an origin uh, story to this? No, it's just that English fans like to make sure like to make sure that you're very aware that they know about more about the game than you do, and any sort of any tool they can use to show you that they're superior, they will. Spoken okay. like a true hot-blooded American, Mike. Okay, I, I can <laughs> buy right. that explanation. Actually, the rationale is sound. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Mike, let let's talk about Leicester City, who were of course at the top of the table at the end of last season, shocking the world. We spoke about them several times with you last year, uh, and about the odds that this could happen and, and how to make sense of it. They are now 15th in the table, I believe. Uh, that is not first in the table. <laughs> what has changed? Was it a loss of player personnel? Was Is it uh, sort of regression to the mean, as we'd say, around 538's parts? So, yeah, there, there's a – I mean, there, I, I would say there's two things. One is, is simple regression. Uh, I mean, this is 
they weren't as good as the results were last year. And, and so this, was, this is not entirely surprising. But the other thing is what we talked about a little bit when we were talking about Chelsea is that N'Golo Conte is just really, really good. And, you know, he, he's a big defensive difference maker in midfield. And for a team in Leicester that had some, you know, they have an iffy center back pairing that played extremely well last year, right? Uh, Wes Morgan and Robert Huth are sort of longtime journeyman pros who had out-of-their-mind seasons at the heart of that defense. And a lot of that has to do with Conte playing in, in front of them. And so, you know, trying to replace that magic. They, they, they went out, they've brought in three or four young defensive midfielders in the hopes that one of them will develop and sort of become a star. But that's kind of the magic in a bottle type thing that's really hard to replace. And is there something there, Mike, about um, it, it seems like not just Lester, but Lester might be a part of this, that the cream is now kind of rising again to the top. The favorites are kind of dominating the teams that sort of seem, at least to the to the naked eye and to some of the metrics out there, to have the most talent are now uh, at the top of the table. Was last year sort of uh, kind of just a fluke in that regard, that the top teams seem to have down years and that enabled a team like Lester to rise? And so this is kind of like back to business as usual this year? Yeah, very much. So there was a big question coming into this season as to what last year meant, right? Um, because there's this new TV contract and lots of teams in the Premier League have a lot of money now, the question was, does that mean that the richest teams are going to have less than less of an edge? And so was last year an example of that, or was it just sort of a handful of fluky things happening at the same time? Um, this season sure seems to indicate that last year was just the weird year. You know, Manchester United went out and spent a lot of money. Manchester City spent a lot of money. Chelsea bought Conte from Leicester. Um, you know, and we've really seen the top six teams. So, so those teams, Spurs, Liverpool, um, and Arsenal, separate themselves from the pack again. And it's a really interesting top six race, but there's a fair bit of space between them and, say, Everton back in seventh. Mike, I- just for like listeners who maybe don't totally have a, a handle on the, the the TV deal in the EPL, can you mm-hmm. offer a comparison? So, like even for me personally, how to think about you know the sure. the payment it's, structure? Um, like, is it like should I think of it as like the Yankees and the Red Sox, or is there more parity yeah. possibility like an NFL, even though we don't actually see it? Well, like, what is the best parallel for an American? So. So if you want to, the TV deal in terms of revenue sharing in England is similar to like an American sports type deal. So closer to say the NFL than Major League Baseball. But the revenue streams for the various teams vary wildly still. You know, Manchester United is sort of an international financial juggernaut, you know, West Brom, which Albion is not. What? So in terms of <laughs> so in terms of like the difference in spending power that these teams have, it's kind of you know like say late nineties baseball where there are really significant differences in how much teams can pay. Well, and it, what's interesting too is you know it does seem as though when there's a surprising team like Leicester, it can only be sustainable for so long because of the way the transfer market. Works, yeah, and, and, and it sounds like like the teams with tons of money are like, oh hell no. Right. Well, I mean, it's not and, that they're or, not or, always trying to win, but it's like, no, we have this power, this spending power. We're going to go out and use it. Well, it's that. But I, from where I sit, it also seems, though, to be good in the EPL is to basically out yourself as having players worth poaching. Right. And that means right. that it's very hard to, to create a sustainable uh, yeah, solution. Right. Because 
because contracts are different, right? Like you can't because of the way the, tra- the transfer system works, where you can you know basically buy players who are under contract and negotiate a new better contract with them. You don't have this thing that you can do in American sports where you can like lock up a young core for like below market value long term. As soon as these players break out, there are going to be offers for them. Now, you know, sometimes it works the other way. Sometimes a team, you know, sort of a mid-table team can have a player that breaks out and has an amazing year, but for whatever reason, it's probably not sustainable. And then they can cash in before the other shoe drops. Um, but it is a constant struggle. If you're not one of the richest teams, you have to keep finding talent and you're sort of you're running on a treadmill as, as bigger teams then come and swoop up that talent that you buy. Mike, this is more of like a, a philosophical question, and I'm not quite sure like what if you'll be able to answer it. But it seems to me as if over the last few years, the, the American engagement in the EPL has certainly increased. Not just like I, I can go walk down the street and I can mention certain teams and people know what I'm talking about. People are following on NBC, like on a Saturday and Sunday morning. My question is more of like an insight into how you think that opening up of the American market might impact the EPL. And is it even slight enough at this point that there isn't any impact or is it so big already that they won't even feel it? So there's, there's definitely an impact. And I think, yeah, you know, we're going to be American centric, obviously, because we, we live here and we watch it here. But it's not just America. It's it's an opening up of international markets sort of writ large. Um, teams are making inroads to China and in Asia. Teams are making inroads in India. And there is this idea, especially among the bigger teams that are sort of corporations and can sell merchandise and will get sponsorships from various parts of the world, these are all revenue streams for those teams. And it, it, is, it is a big deal for them economically that they can sort of make all of these, this kind of money internationally. It's not necessarily like a TV deal per se. You know, the, even the NBC deal is relatively small potatoes compared to the, the domestic deal that Premier League has in England. But, you know, all of these things add up. Yeah, because I, I know that we talk a ton when NFL goes and plays a game in Mexico City or right. the NBA as if someday we're going to open a team there. I'd never really thought of the inverse when, like, Man City comes on a tour here. That is some version of that, even if the end goal isn't necessarily oh, to open up an EPL team here. Right, no, but the the sort of the preseason t- tours that teams do here and that they do in Asia, those are all big moneymakers for them. And there's actually always sort of this, like kind of in the same way that when the NFL goes to, to London, there's questions about, you know, how fair is it in terms of teams' recovery and scheduling and all these things to make them do that trip. There are huge questions for these preseason and postseason tours that these teams do about, is it good training for these teams or is it just sort of like an undue physical burden that actually keeps them from getting sort of healthy and prepared for the season? They do it to make money and to build the brand around the world. Like that's the primary driving factor. All right, Mike, there are 17 matches left in the EPL season. I'm sure we'll talk to you again before the end of it. It does seem like there could be a nice little race for the Champions League. Uh, we didn't even get to talk about Guardiola versus Mourinho as they duel to try and take over Arsenal's fourth. So oh, I'm sure I'm sure there'll be plenty more time for them to get into it over the, over the stretch run here. All right, Mike, talk All to you right, again soon. Thanks a lot. Listeners, you can read more of Mike Goodman's work on ESPN Insider. On Sunday night, the Knicks lost to the Toronto Raptors 116-101. to It was their 10th loss in the last 12 games. And afterwards, Carmelo Anthony was asked about this very interesting piece that was written by 
Uh, this guy, Charlie Rosen, who is widely understood to be a surrogate for Phil Jackson and then Phil Jackson's beliefs. And in the piece, Rosen writes, quote, Carmel's Anthony's legs are going, going, almost gone. He's four months away from his 33rd birthday. His contract is humongous and contains a no trade clause. It's understood that he'd only accept being dealt to the Cavaliers or the Clippers. And Rosen wondered generally how long Anthony was going to be with the Knicks, writing it. The only sure thing is that Carmelo Anthony has outlived his usefulness in New York. This was widely seen as uh, perhaps Jackson whispering that uh, into Melo's ear without actually talking to Melo directly. Melo answered some questions saying, if the Knicks want me gone, it's time to talk. Lots of strife in New York where Carmelo Anthony has basically never been happy aside from that what one year, playoff year where he went and played the Celtics in, I think, the second round mm-hmm. of the Eastern Conference playoffs. So... You know, we, we're problem solvers here at, at like Hot Take Down us. at 538. And we thought, you know, Carmelo must be wondering a lot about his future right now mm-hmm. and, and, and where he's going to end up and, and where he should end up since he has that no trade clause. And and so, um, Neil, you you in particular are, are the most menschy of all three of us. You you are an altar boy <sighs> among clergy. And- and 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 I and so you know you thought you would do the selfless altruistic thing. I think it's important that Carmelo Anthony not make any more decisions with his heart. I mean, he came to New York because he's from New York, and now I think he really needs to look at the numbers and just decide what the best fit is. And he, unless the heart wants a championship, because we all want a championship for sort of a sphinx of an NBA player. When when you're going to look back at his career, really someone who didn't quite ever live up to the play. On the court, all of this is a long preamble to Neil Payne's research project about where Carmelo Anthony should end up. Neil, take us through the research you did, and of course, the findings. Right. So, again, Carmelo Anthony is one of our kind of favorite players, or at least a player that has like a place in our heart here at Five Thirty Eight mm-hmm. because we named our uh, projection system the Carmelo Projection System, which I should say stands for Career Arc Regression Model Estimator with Local Optimization. Of course, it that is. stands for, that that makes up the word Carmelo. Anyway, the, uh, it's it's a system that looks at a player's statistical portfolio and and then looks to similar players from the past to try to figure out how that player will do going forward. So, I fired up good old Carmelo and looked for uh, the real Carmelo's most similar players uh, this season to his numbers this year. So you get a list that includes Vince Carter, Kobe Bryant, Bernard King, Dominique Wilkins, Tom Chambers, an earlier version of Carmelo, people like that. <laughs> so you're getting sort of the hallmarks there are high usage rates, really high usage rates, guys that go to the basket more than uh, the average player. They have the ball in their hands and they're making plays. They tend to avoid turnovers, but they also don't really play any defense to speak of. Uh, They don't rebound incredibly well, despite being forwards for the most part or or wingmen. And they also don't have especially great efficiencies, but they're not bad efficiency uh, players. So that's kind of the, the, the footprint that we're working with, the statistical footprint of the, of the players. And so when I did, that I wanted to see, first of all, what kind of success those players have. And in general, they don't tend to have a lot of success in the playoffs and they aren't members of really overly successful teams as a rule on average. 
But the what differentiates the players that are similar to Carmelo uh, that did have successful teams from the ones that weren't successful, and I think we can all agree based on especially what you said, Chad, that the Knicks would belong in that group of so, unsuccessful. So who's a, play, who's a player who's compared to him who is who was who did win a championship? For so for instance, Mark Aguirre, when he played for the Detroit Pistons, they were a championship team. Uh, and, and that's kind of the template of a player that, that can do well. Another because, one wait, is wait, Alex wait. English with the Nuggets, Vince okay, Carter so when he was on the 2010 Orlando to, Magic. Let's go to Aguirre with the Pistons. Mm-hmm. I'm, I guess I'm assuming maybe his usage rate on those Pistons teams was a little lower than his yeah, traditional just, usage rate? Just a little bit lower. And right, yeah, compared to his own kind of personal history, he sacrificed a little bit, but still had a really high usage, which okay. kind of counts. Uh, I, I was a little surprised that there are successful templates where you can shoot the ball just about as much as Carmelo has and, and is right now and still be a productive member of a successful team. But really the hallmarks of the of the players that were similar to him that did well versus those who didn't was – you have to be surrounded by efficient shooters. If you're going to have a player like Carmelo sop up so much of the usage, you have to have efficient role players. This isn't rocket science, by the way. This, But, but it is interesting to see it kind of borne out by the numbers. You have to have really good defenders around him, too. Yeah, He, he cannot be a player that is sort of asked to carry uh, a defensive you know, load uh, and and not that he is on the Knicks, but he's not that much better than his teammates. Okay. The other two that are factors that are a little bit less important than those two, but are still relatively important is he can't be the only player that is sort of taking the ball to the basket and, and getting a lot of the free throws. You have to have other players do that as well. And also, yeah, you can't have him carrying a lot of the rebounding load. That was what I thought was interesting is that Mello as a rebounder this year has actually been pretty decent. And that's kind of a bad thing because if you're asking him to do that, it means that you haven't surrounded him with the type of front court players that tend to complement a player who's as much of a scorer as him. Okay, so with all those those conditions uh, outlined, what did you find? So if we look at the environment in the NBA that sort of best compares to the successful version of a Carmelo, should we have Kate guess first? Which again, sure, if you want to. Are obvious teams included, I'm assuming? These like, are t- do so, I think that Carmelo on the Golden State Warriors is a good idea? No, uh, so the way I set it up was I was looking for teams that sort of, if you swapped players in and out and kind of put Melo in there, that they would best fit the sort of chemistry mix of the successful. And, and again, uh, this is not successful like in an absolute sense so like nba championship type of of performances this is more successful relative to the type of player that carmelo is and and relative to maybe the knicks right now uh and so if you put him on for instance the portland trail i was gonna say the blazers that's a team that he would kind of mesh with because they don't have uh, a lot of duplicating um Mm -hmm. you know skills that would overlap with what he has right now and you would be able to kind of slot him in and be able to maximize. Now, again... You have the, a real point guard playing with him for maybe the first time. So right. we're not actually trading Carmelo for somebody. We're putting him into... We're kind of putting him into an environment that has matched up with okay. the types of environments that, for instance, your Mark Aguirre's and your Alex Englishes were in when they saw postseason success. So again, okay. my, the definition of postseason success here is not winning a championship. It's more like getting to the conference semifinals or something. You know, like... It, it, it's still a pretty elusive thing for Carmelo. For Carmelo, for sure, especially 
especially since he left Denver. And one of the big takeaways here is that there, first of all, there aren't a lot of situations that you could slot him into. Uh, another one is Minnesota is a team that if you, for instance, took out Andrew Wiggins and put in Carmelo Anthony, that might be a better chemistry mix for for Carmelo than, than the one he's currently in on the Knicks. But these are hard situations to find, and it underscores the fact that a player like Carmelo, most of the players comparable to him in the past, just couldn't find postseason success. He's a difficult player to build a championship team around, which I think lines up with the subjective opinions maybe the the Charlie Rosens of the world would also have, which is that, you know, if you're going to have a player that has a really high usage and commands the ball so much, but also doesn't play defense and doesn't do a lot of the kind of peripheral things outside of scoring, there's a cap on how good as a team you can be if you've built around that particular archetype. When I think of Carmelo and the possibility of the elusive title, not just like winning a postseason round. I don't picture a Carmelo Anthony who plays like he currently plays. Right. I picture an end of career Carmelo who's willing to change his game in a number of ways. Something he has not always been willing to no, do. No, and York. so, and I know, and so, I mean, I know the model is like using his general usage rate and other factors now, but I'm always like maybe 38 year, year old Carmelo is willing to play. 20 minutes a game and be a small piece. That's like, to me, that's the only way he actually ends up with any sort of winning legacy. Right. Uh, and, and one of the next things that I still need to do before I actually put this in an article is I, I wanted to look at that exact thing, Kate, which is looking at uh, players that fit this uh, profile at some point in their careers, but not necessarily in the year in which they saw postseason success. And then try to figure out, first of all, are there players that have transformed themselves and kind of you know sublimated themselves uh, for the good of a championship run that were at one point the type of player Carmelo is? And then also, what does that look like? Like, what do you have to give up? And if I had to guess without actually running the numbers, certainly usage is one of those ones. And I think weirdly, uh, just assist rate would be another one where he would have to be able to kind of just have the ball in his hands less and become, you know, a scorer of the type of player like maybe a Mark Aguirre was, where you you score when you're called upon, and maybe you can score in isolation and that become and in the post, and that becomes sort of your calling card. But your the offense is not running through you on every play, and you're not making the decision not just whether you call your own number, but whether you call someone else's number. You have to have you know someone else doing that. And, and you just become one of the ways in which the offense can work, but not the way. And I don't know if I'm being naive, but perhaps if his usage rate goes down, he has more energy to, when he is on the floor, be a Play more defense. effective defender. Yes. So yes. I have a few questions. One, if he adjusted to that role on the Knicks, does that make the Knicks better? Oh, well, I think it... <sighs> it depends if Porzingis right, can develop sure, and all sure. of a sudden Right, but my point is that in a year of... or two, maybe that's that's actually the way that Anthony gets the championship as well, is just to stick with the Knicks. Right, that would be interesting. And I'm not sure how much of this these transformations also took place on the same team versus on a different team. My guess would be that most of them had to take place on a sure, different team sure. after being traded right. away. So, and Yeah, and the other thing is that uh, if you're... The Knicks right now, the supporting cast that they have around him clearly is not working, and I'm not sure that they have the pieces to sort of ask Carmelo to to play a different role but then fill in the gaps. They they may be playing the most optimum version of this Knicks roster, which is a really depressing thought. So, okay, so the Blazers you mentioned, Mm -hmm. 
Real quick, then, segment. Were there other teams that, that fit? Yeah, so uh, Sacramento was an interesting one because uh, that didn't make Carmel a lot together. of sense to me. Yeah, like if you took away some of uh, the the Kings, not Boogie, but uh, their backcourt or kind of wing options and put Carmelo in there, that would be a place in which his talents might flourish. But I question whether he could coexist with, with uh, Boogie. And then the other one is the Lakers and, and seeing how he would work in that situation. That's an intriguing one, but I don't know if that would step on Julius Randle's development. They seem kind of similar. Similar in the in the Feels spaces like on the got court that they moved play. on from a high usage <laughs> right exactly and, and, and right and it's worth noting Mello's that final tour through the league <laughs> right. right it's worth noting that the second most comparable player to Carmelo this year is a 33 year old Kobe Bryant from that ill fated 2012 Lakers team wow all right Neil. I'm sure Carmelo appreciates all this advice. That was oh, fascinating. You know, next time I am in line with him at uh, the Equinox uh, Cafe, I will be sure to has, tell him all this. Has story. That happened this, for... this happened like two years ago, yeah. Oh, two years ago. Right across cool. the street. That's right across awesome. the street. Yeah. All right, Carmelo, if you want to come on the show, open invite to talk about where you should go next. Let's leave it there. And uh, I think it's time for our significant digit, guys. It is. When a telling number from the world of sports is delivered to us today i am doing the delivery mm. teeing up yourself yes our significant digit is 21 million dollars that is the salary that a rod will be paid by the yankees next season not to play baseball but to do whatever a rod wants and this week it was announced that a rod's next project beyond his pretty good commentary yeah. um yeah during the world series and on whatever other baseball telecasts is going to be a show for cnbc that show is called Back in the Game, and it's going to be A-Rod counseling former players how to get out of the financial holes that they have dug themselves. Is I want to watch incredible? that. I know. It is the perfect show I will watch when I'm traveling in a hotel, and there's like a marathon of four in a row. I will keep but that on and watch A-Rod. Here's the question. It. If you had to watch Million Dollar Listing or A-Rod's Back in the Game... <sighs> Is there a way we could combine the two? <laughs> Real estate, A-Rod. I'm trying to think of like 30-minute shows that I binge watch and it's million-dollar listing. And uh, perhaps this new one. But my question there is, was A-Rod actually ever in a situation in which he was broke? It seems like not. It seems like perhaps he's done why a job. I, that's why I'm so and curious so about you could, it. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe that is the 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 um, pattern that other people can follow. But he himself has not actually had to but dig this, himself out. But this out. is a classic A-Rod thing, which is I am perfect. Aspire to be me. I have no understanding of weakness even though you know my my lying my duplicitous actions towards steroids uh is is but weakness he, but i won't acknowledge that isn't he kind of saying that he must have made i'm hoping that we'll see but i'm hoping he's acknowledging that he made poor decisions at various points with his financially and he learned from them and now he's counseling others well, that's the question so right? hopefully there's some level level of vulnerability baked in because otherwise if it's like a rod from on high you know Hey, the, offering advice that could be a it's not turn off. it's not just a rod who's going to offer advice for what's worth it's um it's hosted by a rod and there will be a panel of money savvy mentors is my understanding who ah. can help them get back on their feet I sort of love it's perfect that a rod's good at TV because TV is all about the surface level and not about depth and so him as like not rea what do you call this not reality host it's it's like a I guess it's a reality show, million dollars listing and stuff like that. But like that is a medium that is designed for A Rod's personality type, as we know it. Well, my question about the panel also is: uh, is is the 
pan, uh, is the advisor, the celebrity advisor whose athlete kind of makes it the most out of bankruptcy by the end of the episode, the winner? Is there some kind of like competition? I think it's going to be more like those CNBC shows where they like fix a failing business. Yeah, yeah. Or, or like Gordon Ramsay going and taking restaurant. a restaurant yeah, yeah. and it around. We can see the positive financial behavior at the end of each episode. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, <laughs> let's do a recap podcast of, of A-Rod's uh, Back oh, of course. Game. Obviously, spinoff pod. All right, that will do it for this week's show. Neil Payne, thanks for gabbing about sports with me. Thanks, Chad. Kate Fagan, same goes to you. Thanks, Chad. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Our podcast reality host is Jody Abergan. Our intern is Kara Chin. Our, we got production assistance from Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We would love to hear what you think. Find us on your favorite podcasting app. We're also on iTunes. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. While you're there, be sure to review and or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I am Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.